Turn with me again tonight to uh, Ephesians chapter 6, and as usual we'll begin to read from the verse 10. I'd just like to thank uh, Jonathan for his kind words of welcome back again this evening. Uh, it's good to see William again, and uh, Jonathan forgot, of course, just to welcome one person to the meeting tonight, and that's Octavius here sitting or standing in the corner. He's been very faithful all week. He hasn't missed a meeting. In fact, he's the first one here and the last one to leave. doesn't matter what time I turn up at, he's always here before me. Um, but it's good to be back again tonight. As Jonathan said, we're not, we weren't really sure what way the weather was going to pan out. In fact, when Wesley and I left Ballygolly tonight, uh, heading for Roma, uh, the road conditions were pretty bad. We wondered, I suppose, within ourselves where we were going to make it at all. But by the time we got to Oma, the snow had completely disappeared. And so we thank the Lord for that. We just have to make it home again. So. But we're here anyway. So um, Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll read again from. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this world and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So far, we have looked at the first four pieces of the armour of God. We have examined the belt of truth, which speaks of a life built upon the faithfulness to the word of God and to the God of uh, the word the belt of truth gives us the ability to stand firm in the battle and provides a place for all the other pieces of the armour to rest. And then we looked at the breastplate of righteousness. This reminds us of the robe of Christ's righteousness which we received at the moment of our conversion. And it also speaks of the holy life that springs from that imputed righteousness within us. Sin in our lives gives Satan the ammunition that he needs to destroy our testimonies and assault the glory of God. But personal holiness closes the door to Satan. Next, we looked at the boots of the gospel of peace. And the boots remind us we can not only stand firm, but also advance in the knowledge that we are sure and secure in our salvation. Therefore, boots of peace give us the confidence to share the good news of the gospel so that lost souls can be saved and have and enjoy what we as Christians already possess. And then finally, we looked at the shield of faith, which speaks of simple faith in God, which allows us to trust him through good times and bad. Even when the fiery darts of the enemy are raining down on us, 
The shield of faith will protect us and allow us to remain in the battle. When protected by the shield of faith, the devil will find it impossible to eliminate us. So tonight, I want to look at the remaining two pieces of God's armour, which is the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. First of all, the helmet of salvation, verse 17, it says, Take the helmet of salvation. The most vulnerable area of any soldier's body is the head. If a soldier gets a head wound, it is likely to be fatal, and that is why the helmet right up to the present day has always been one of the most important pieces of a soldier's equipment. This is why Paul has listed a helmet as part of the equipment of the armour of God. The Roman soldier wore a helmet of thick leather covered in metal or a bronze helmet with plates either side to protect the face. He carried his helmet over his shoulder or attached to his belt until he needed it in the battle. The helmet never left his side and he never entered the battle without first putting his helmet on. His helmet protected him from the enemy's double-edged broadsword, which was about four feet long. This was used by soldiers on horseback in an effort to try and decapitate their victims, but the helmet helped to deflect the blows and protect from injury. The helmet of salvation will also protect the wearer from attacks on his mind. Salvation involves your mind. And Satan's blows are directed to the believer's security and assurance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is a vital part of the gospel message. And in order to be saved, a sinner must first repent. And when the Lord Jesus and John the Baptist began their public ministries, the very first message they preached was on repentance. They said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter's message on the streets of Jerusalem was the same. He said, Repent ye therefore, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Paul shared how God's only way of salvation was simple and straightforward. It was repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Many years ago, the RUC had their training establishment and barracks in Enniskillen. And when the drill instructor would have had the young recruits marching up and down the drill square and he had wanted them to go in the other direction, he simply would have called out the word of command, repent. And as soon as the recruits heard that word, they immediately turned round and marched the other way. And that's basically what repentance is. It's going one way and maybe for years and years going one way and then immediately going in the other direction. We not only change direction, but we change our minds about God, we change our minds about sin. And with this change of mind comes a change of life. Therefore, the Christian life must begin with repentance and faith. Our Christian lives will then grow as we cultivate our knowledge of the word of God. Peter instructs the new believer to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. A person who does not use his mind is not going to grow mentally or spiritually. God wants us to have a spiritual mind, the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. God wants our minds to be transformed. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
So the Christian life begins with repentance, which is a change of mind and faith in Christ. We grow as our mind is transformed, but we will not have victory in the Christian life unless we have an understanding of the word of God, of how Satan works and how God gives us the victory. We must know Satan's tactics. Paul stated we are not to be ignorant of his devices. During World War II, General Patton's tanks were engaged in a successful counterattack on Rommel's German forces. Patton is reported to have shouted in the thick of the battle, I've read your book, Rommel. I've read your book. You see, before the war, Rommel had foolishly published a book detailing his military tactics and strategies. And having read the book, Patton then knew exactly what to expect. There are multitudes of books with Satan's fingerprints all over them today. But God has authored a book which exposes all of Satan's tactics. Unfortunately, many Christians are not aware of his devices because they don't take the time to read God's book, the Bible. In order to grow and counterattack Satan and have victory in the Christian life, we must prepare our minds and know Satan's tactics before we enter the battle, or Satan will deceive us and defeat us. You see, Satan wants to have, or wants us to have a divided mind. When we put on the helmet of salvation, God communicates his thoughts to us through his word and by his spirit. If we're wearing the helmet of salvation, we will not have the wrong kind of thoughts and the wrong kind of attitudes. One of the most important functions of the helmet is to prevent a divided mind. A soldier who has a divided mind will never win the battle, for such a person will simply be unstable in all that they do. James says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. We cannot take a half-hearted approach to the Christian life. It must be all or nothing. The Lord Jesus will not tolerate lukewarm Christianity. If we are not willing to enter the battle wholeheartedly for Christ, then he would prefer if we never enlisted at all. We must choose sides in this war. And that is what Moses was talking about when he, when he told the Israelites, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. Joshua warned the people that they couldn't serve God and idols. And he challenged them to choose you this day whom you will serve. Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. Either we are on the Lord's side or we are against the Lord. A soldier in the First World War stranded in no man's land risked being shot at from both sides. You see, there is no middle ground in the spiritual battlefield. We also need a mindset of victory. Peter described this mindset in 1 Peter chapter 4. He said, for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Our mind is a weapon in this battle. We must arm ourselves with the same attitude towards sin and suffering that Jesus had. The Lord did not have a divided mind. He had a single purpose in life, to glorify his Father and to accomplish his Father's will. And there are many examples in the Bible of God's soldiers adopting the right mind. You'll remember Moses sent 12 spies into Canaan to survey the situation. 
and ten of those spies, they had a divided mind. Instead of looking only to the Lord as their source of strength, they began to compare themselves with their huge, powerful enemies. And they said, oh, the people are too strong and the cities are too great and we're not able to overcome this enemy. But Joshua and Caleb's minds were not divided. And they said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. These two men faithfully took God at his word. They trusted him to give them the land that he had promised to give them. David was able to face the giant Goliath without fear because he was wearing his helmet of salvation. His mind was focused only on the victory. He refused to wear Saul's armor, preferring to trust in God's protection and God's power. And David told Goliath, This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee, and I will take the head from thee, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David faced the giant with a single mind centered on victory. But the devil wants us to have a divided mind. We must constantly guard against having divided minds and divided loyalties. The Bible says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. And also Satan wants us to have a deceived mind. You see, not only does the helmet of salvation protect us from a divided mind, but it also prevents us from having a deceived mind. You see, a divided mind will lead to a deceived mind. If we do not have a single-hearted devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan will be able to deceive our minds, just as he deceived Eve's mind in the Garden of Eden. Satan took three very simple steps to deceive her. First, he questioned God's word. In Genesis 3, he said, Hath God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? In other words, did God really say that, Eve? Then he denied God's word. He said, Ye shall not surely die. And then finally, he changed God's truth with his lie. And he said, God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Satan follows these same three steps to deceive us today. Satan is able to divide our minds and deceive us if in the midst of battle we put down our helmet of salvation, even for a moment. Joshua found this out when the Gibeonites tricked Israel into making a treaty with them. Rather than asking the Lord, Joshua believed the Gibeonites' story. And this covenant caused Israel all kinds of trouble. Joshua took off his helmet and Satan was waiting to deceive him. If Joshua had been wearing the helmet, he wouldn't have hesitated to pray and to seek the mind of God about the whole situation. Peter obviously made the same mistake. When he made his great confession of faith, he had his helmet on. But then when Jesus taught the disciples how he must suffer and die, Peter took his helmet off and and he said, he began to rebuke the Lord saying, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. And then Jesus had to rebuke Peter. Satan deceived Peter because he didn't have his helmet on. One reason why we study the word of God is so that Satan cannot deceive us. If we know the truth, we won't be such an easy prey. For Satan's lies. But also Satan wants us to have a doubtful mind. Satan loves to attack our minds with his broadsword. But if you wear the helmet of salvation, his strikes will be deflected and you'll be protected from a divided mind, a deceived mind and a doubtful mind. 
Jesus warned in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, Seek not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of a doubtful mind. In other words, don't let your mind be filled with doubts. The Greek word translated as doubtful here gives us the English word meteor, meaning to be in midair or to live in suspense or to hover. Many Christians today have minds that are hovering, constantly worrying about yesterday and today and and forever and, and tomorrow, and a mind filled with doubts, even though God has already promised to provide for us and to protect us. If we doubt our salvation or doubt the word of God, we are easily defeated by the enemy. If we doubt the word of God, the very foundations of our hope in the Lord is undermined and we have no ground upon which to stand. If Satan can convince us that we're not really saved or that we have lost our salvation, then we'll be paralyzed, we'll be unproductive and most miserable. We are easy pickings for Satan's demonic vultures if we lose our assurance of salvation. If Satan has been yielding this sword of doubt at you recently, then let me tell you, brother and sister, tonight, you are secure in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus has never, ever rejected or lost a soul that has come to him yet. And he never will. He never will. Paul wrote that, Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He also said, he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, the very last day. When Paul says, take the helmet of salvation, he means we are to stand in the full assurance of the salvation we possess in the Lord. The Lord has redeemed us and has promised everlasting life, and that knowledge will deflect Satan's broadsword of doubt. Believer, the Lord has purchased you with his own precious blood. He won't abandon you and he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will keep you through every trial and tribulation and he will whisk you off to glory when your time on earth is done. So friend, put that helmet of salvation back on and get back into the battle. Then finally, Satan wants us to have a discouraged mind Satan tries to fill our minds, you see, with discouragement by pointing out our failures, our weaknesses, our sins, our poor health, or anything else that we have negative in our lives. He hopes we'll then lose confidence in the love and care of our Heavenly Father. But the helmet of salvation will help prevent a discouraged mind. Paul wrote about the helmet's power over discouragement in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He said, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. The helmet of salvation is the hope of salvation. When a soldier loses his hope, he loses the battle. If he puts his head above the parapet and says we cannot win this war, then he will just give up and be defeated. Defeat comes from within and not from without. If we give up in the future promise of salvation, we will have no security in the present. The helmet of salvation is the great hope of the final salvation, which then gives us confidence and assurance that our present struggles with Satan will not last forever and we will be victorious in the end. The battle only rages on earth, friend, and this life is just a blink of an eye compared to eternity with our Lord Jesus 
in heaven. We are not running a race that we can lose. And there is a finish line for us all. The successful Christian soldier is the one who never capitulates inside. Within his heart he continually says, I know, I know that God is going to see me through. True hope in the Christian life is not a I hope so attitude, it is a know so attitude. A firm and unwavering confidence in God's promises and purposes. Discouragement comes when we forget the blessed hope we have in Jesus Christ. Paul wrote, we are looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. We forget that the Lord is coming back to take us all home. So fix your eyes on the glory, the coming glory, and don't ever quit. If there are days when when we say to ourselves, oh, I, I don't feel like praying and I don't feel like reading, friend, those are the days when we need to pray and when we, we need to read the most. A marathon runner often hits the wall when they come close to the finish line. His body becomes weak, his legs begin to wobble, but the runner keeps in mind the finish line, which is his ultimate goal. That's the hope which keeps him going when every other part of him simply wants to give up. When we wear the helmet of salvation, we keep focused on the finish line. Satan will not be able to invade our minds and rob us of our inheritance that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The enemy is continually using his weapons of division, deception and doubt and discouragement against us. But when we make up our minds to keep going, to keep focused and fight to the end, Satan will be unable to divide our thoughts and divide our loyalties. When we claim the Lord's promises and rejoice in the hope of our salvation, we will not be plagued with doubts or discouragement. By having the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, a transformed mind, one day we will have the great privilege of trading in our helmet for a crown. The Bible says, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. The hymn writer put it like this, Stand up, stand up for Jesus, the strife will not be long. This day, yes, the noise of battle, the next, though the victor's song. To him that overcometh a crown of life shall be, he with the king of glory shall reign eternally. So there's the helmet of salvation. And then finally we have the sword of the spirit. Verse 17 again, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. By and large, the other pieces of the armor are defensive The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the boots of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, they're all designed to protect a particular part of the body. However, the sword is different. The sword is not only used to protect and defend the whole of the body, but it is also used as an offensive weapon. This is the only part of the armor that is used to attack the enemy. And every true soldier needs a weapon. And this is our weapon. There are two words used for sword in the New Testament. Rumphaya, which is the typical long double-edged sword we, we, we can all probably see now in our mind's eye. And then there's the other type of sword, the makara, which is a long knife carried by the Roman soldiers and carried in his scabbard attached to his belt. It was this type of sword that Peter used to cut the high priest's servant's ear off. 
Satan doesn't just shoot fiery darts at us, you see. Sometimes he and his army of demons move in on us so that we're forced into hand-to-hand combat. But thankfully, God provides us with this very powerful weapon to resist him. Paul calls it the sword of the spirit. And then to make sure that we all know what he means and to clarify what he's saying here, he goes on to say, which is the word of God. So the sword, which is the only weapon of attack in our fight against Satan, is provided by the Holy Spirit and is, of course, the inspired, infallible, inerrant, reliable word of God. The Bible is crucial in the spiritual battle And only a spiritual weapon will be effective in this war against principalities and against powers and against the spiritual wickedness in high places. An ordinary sword becomes blunt over time, but the sword of the Spirit never, ever loses its sharpness. We do not fight in our own strength. Neither do we fight with our own weapons. Our own ideas and thoughts are useless, but the Scriptures are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. However, the sword must not be separated from the other pieces of the armour. You see, you cannot carry the sword and not wear the armour. Without the protection of the armour and the power of the sword together, we leave ourselves vulnerable for attack. For example, we must have the belt of truth on, which speaks of integrity. You can use the sword and quote the Bible, but if you have no integrity... If you can't be trusted and you've got a bad name within your community, then your words will simply bounce off the wall and people will just recognize you as the hypocrite that you are. When America developed the atomic bomb in 1945, defeat for Japan was inevitable. But the Bible, the Bible is more powerful than any bomb or bullet and Satan's defeat is also inevitable. When the word of God is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, it transforms lost sinners. It invades their darkness and drags them into the light. It enters the tomb of their dead condition and breathes life into their very spirits. The balance of power is always firmly on the side of the Christian because the weapon God provides for him is far superior to anything the enemy can produce. If I was to give each of you tonight the standard-issued British Army SE-80 rifle, you might struggle to use it. You might not know how to load the magazine. You might not know how to put a round up the chamber. You might not even know how to adjust the telescopic sights. To have one of the best rifles in the world is one thing, but having the skill to use it is something else. And to have the sword of the Spirit is one thing, but to be skilled in its use is another. Just as the Bible is provided by the Holy Spirit, it is also the Holy Spirit who will guide us into all truth and will help us to use it effectively. But we also have our own part to play here. You cannot understand Scripture and know how to effectively use Scripture unless you're prepared to study Scripture. The Holy Spirit will then remind us of what we have learned and he will enable us then to practice it. You see, the Bible is no ordinary book. The Bible is from another world. It is alive, and it is the only book in the world where the author is immediately available to guide us in understanding us as we study it. The Bible can be trusted. The Bible can be believed. And when you attempt to practice its teachings, the author is always there to give you the strength and grace that you need. 
As believers indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we can understand his word because, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, we have received not only the spirit of the world, or we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. And like any enemy, Satan will seek to destroy our weapons. Satan tries to undermine the truth and reliability of the Bible. But he also causes believers to think that because they are not very well educated, then they cannot expect to understand the more difficult teachings of Scripture. But of course, that is a lie from the father of lies. Paul's letter to the Romans, for example, uh, has some of the most complex doctrines in the Bible. But it wasn't written to theologians or university graduates or even college professors. It was written to the church. And the church in Rome was made up of ordinary people just like you and me. Paul knew that minds enlightened by the Holy Spirit would be able to understand Scripture if they really wanted to. For centuries, Satan used the Roman Catholic Church to keep the Bible from ordinary people. They forbid them to own a copy, and even if they did own a copy, it was written in Latin and they couldn't have read it anyway. And therefore, in an effort to keep people in darkness, translations were burned and men like William Tyndale gave their lives so that we could have the Bible in English today. The Protestant Reformation was used by God to give the people the Bible in their own language. So friends, we must love the Bible because it has been baptized in the blood of the martyrs. We must remember the Bible is not a novel. It's not a newspaper. It is God's word. So before we read it, we must come to the author and ask God the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. The psalmist says, open thy mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. We must read the word of God daily. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Napoleon believed that an army marches on its stomach. And of course he meant that good food every day was essential for the efficiency and morale and success of his soldiers. And as God's soldiers, we need good spiritual food every day to keep us strong in the battle. The word of God is like a vast reservoir. Its provisions can never be exhausted. We need to study it daily if we are to get anywhere near an understanding of its teachings. The purpose of Bible study is to train ourselves in the use of the only weapon that we have, the sword of the Spirit. Weapon training in the British Army doesn't suddenly finish and end at the, at, at the end of, of basic training. No, it continues non-stop throughout the soldier's 22-year military career. The soldier is constantly refreshed on his weapon handling skills, his shooting skills. He's, he's tested on his safety precautions, and rightly so, because his weapon stands between success and failure. It stands between him and death. The Bible is crucial to the Christian soldier. Daily training is crucial. Reading, studying, meditating on his teachings, these are the only ways to be a skilled soldier of Jesus Christ who can effectively use the sword of the Spirit. If a soldier went into battle without his sword, he would be easily defeated. He will be no threat to the enemy, and in fact he will be a liability to his own side. 
His comrades would not be able to rely on him and would spend much of their time protecting him and rescuing him. And likewise, if the Christian evangelizing on the streets fails to give sufficient time and effort to the word, they too will be easily defeated in the devil's domain. When they come up against some of the cults that will roam the streets these days, cults that are well trained to twist specific verses, then they will be a liability to their comrades who will have to come to their rescue time and time again. We cannot separate the sword of the Spirit from prayer either. Uh, The early church said, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The Lord Jesus promised, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask or pray what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. The word of God enlightens us, while prayer enables us. God's word reveals the will of God. Prayer enables us to do the will of God. We cannot expect to have our prayers answered unless we pray in God's will, and we will know God's will when he reveals it to us from his word. The word of God and our worship of God must go together as well. Much of our praise has lost its power today because it is not linked to the power of the word. Our hymns must be based on the word of God. Too many modern worship songs have no connection with the sword in our hands. But the psalmist said, let the high praises of God be in their mouth and the two-edged sword in their hand. Too many churches have separated the word of God from their praise of God and sadly the power has gone. The purpose of understanding scripture is not to pass examinations. It's not to show people how clever or intelligent we are. No, it's to use a sword against sin. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he answered each time by quoting from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Jesus did not rebuke Satan. He did not discuss or debate or argue with Satan. He just used the word of God as his sword. It annoys me, you know, when Christian politicians are challenged on their faith and beliefs and are afraid to strike back with the sword of the Spirit, afraid of appearing as freaks in front of their electorate. The Lord teaches us, however, that in difficult times, The word of God is always our greatest defense. If Jesus thought it necessary to use the word, then so must we. The last time a Jehovah's Witness called with me, I just pointed him to the word of God regarding the third person of the Trinity, which they obviously do not believe. And the man promised that he would get get back to me with the answers. That was nine years ago. And he never did come back because he had no answer. He had no defense to the sword. Sometimes, you know, we ask ourselves questions like, shall I go here? Shall I go there? Shall I do that? This? Shall I do that? And the answer is always to be found in the scripture principles that cover every possible situation. Using the sword is not just a matter of quoting a few verses. It is knowing the word and being able to apply it to every possible eventuality. The Pharisees quoted scripture The cults quote scripture, the ungodly quote scripture, even the sodomite at their parades of sin will shout across at you and quote scripture. And again in the wilderness, the devil quoted from Psalm 91, but his use of scripture was entirely wrong. 
Jesus was not taken in by the fact that these words were from the Bible because Jesus knows the Bible. He was the author of the Bible. And Jesus hit back at the devil and he said, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Jesus was so familiar with the word that he was able to select specific verses to pierce the enemy every time. This is important because when the devil sends the Jehovah's Witnesses to knock on your door or the Mormons to stop you on the street, they will also quote from the Bible, but they will either twist its meaning or quote out of context, just like the devil. So let us not forget the sword is not only a defensive weapon, it is also for attack. We are to attack Satan and carry the fight into his strongholds of darkness. That will mean preaching, preaching the word of God up in the city at the Halloween celebrations. It will mean preaching at the Sodomite parades of sin in Belfast because the Bible tells us we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Therefore, the sword of the Spirit must be to the forefront in witness and evangelism. When Jesus dealt with the rich young ruler, he used the sword. He used the Ten Commandments to show the young man what sin really was. Jesus used the law and not just a selection of gospel texts. This was a skillful use of the sword, the right verse at the right time. In the book of Acts, the apostles always used the sword to evangelize. They preached that Jesus is the king of the world, who has all authority. He is God in the flesh and that he is holy. And they went out there and they preached that people were sinners and that God commanded them to repent. They didn't mess about. Witnessing is is simply telling sinners what God has to say about them and then using the sword of the Spirit to do it. There is no substitute for the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In Hebrews it says, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. God's word is a discerner critic and a judge and reveals what is really going on within the human heart. Only the Holy Spirit can convict us of our sins by using the word. So we must never ever try to separate the word from the spirit. The spirit uses the word and the spirit gives life. So friends, love the word, live the word, learn the word, Care for the word, read the word, know the word, use the word, and preach the word. Whether you lose your friends, your job, your savings, your home, whether you live or whether you die, preach the word and never compromise. If you're not saved tonight, then get back to the book. Read the word. Do what the word says. Repent ye and believe the gospel because Jesus himself said, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish.